Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. So maybe you've come across an infographic on social media or an article about BPD. It talks about chronic feelings of emptiness, fears of abandonment, unstable or shifting sense of self, and it all just seems to fit. You think, that's me, I've got BPD. I remember being at this place in my journey. It was extremely overwhelming. I found a lot of resources and information that were helpful, but I also found a lot that were extremely stigmatizing and made me feel like I was a hopeless and horrible person who could never find love or live a meaningful life. In this episode, I'll be giving you the BPD basics, the information I wish I would have known at the beginning of my recovery journey that would have saved me a lot of time and suffering. By the end, you'll view BPD in a completely different way. You'll even have some resources that will help you start better understanding and advocating for yourself. So, let's get into it. Welcome to Back from the Borderline, the podcast that helps anyone who identifies with symptoms of BPD overcome their biggest obstacle, themselves. My name's Molly, and it's my mission to help you break free from your self-limiting beliefs and self-sabotaging behaviors so that you can more deeply connect with yourself, other people, and the present moment. Once you join me, you'll realize that anyone, including you, can come back from the borderline. Oh, hi. I'm so glad you're here with me. I thought, what better way to start this summer off? Megan the Stallion says, hot girl summer. We're going to do hot BPD girl summer. But this is not just for the BPD girls. It's for the BPD everyone. If you're a long-term listener of Back from the Borderline, you know we've dived deep. We've taken this to masterclass recovery content and What I realized this week is that there are times when it's good to go back to basics. There are some people that are searching for my podcast who are in the seat that I was in. I remember being that person and typing, do I have BPD into the Google search bar and being so seen and validated, but also terrified and hopeless at the search results that came up. I never want to forget what it felt like to be in that position. And that is what inspired Hot BPD Girl Summer. I thought, I'm going to go into overdrive of content creation to answer some of the most basic questions about borderline personality disorder so that people who are where I was a couple of years ago typing their first BPD search query into Google can find something that is validating, not stigmatizing, and answers all the questions that I wish I had someone there to answer for me when I was in those shoes. I want to start this off by letting you know that if you are in that position right now 
and you are wondering if you have BPD, if you're making those kind of searches in any search bar, Google, YouTube, and that maybe that's how you found my podcast, it means that you're hurting and you're suffering. And I know the depth of that suffering so well. If you are even considering the fact that you might have BPD, it means that you identify with some of the most painful emotional and psychological suffering. And I want you to know that I was right there where you were and maybe where you are right now, and it does get better. There is hope for recovery. You are not broken and unfixable forever. You can find love. You can start to love yourself. You can find a sense of identity. You just don't have the skills. And you maybe grew up in an environment that was traumatizing for you, where you didn't learn emotional coping skills or self-soothing. You can learn all of these things. And that's what we do together here on this podcast. But in order to take it to the next level, we have to understand what borderline personality disorder is, how it manifests, and also tackle some of the things that I think are more problematic about personality disorder diagnoses that will change your life, change the way you view BPD, and really help you avoid some of the pitfalls that I think many people with BPD or those who suspect that they might have it fall into when they get sucked into BPD Instagram and what I often like to call the circle jerk of sadness. Many of my long-term listeners are familiar with this phrase. We all spend a little bit of time in the circle jerk of sadness. This is, you know, Tumblr vibes, Instagram vibes, TikTok videos that just talk about how much we're suffering as people with BPD. But most of us at our core want to experience a life that feels like it's worth living. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's start at the very core of it. BPD obviously stands for Borderline Personality Disorder. In the 1930s, a psychoanalyst named Adolf Stern created the term borderline to describe patients who appeared to fall between Sigmund Freud. You guys all know who that is, I'd imagine, the daddy of psychoanalysis. Maybe some problematic views, but that's for another episode. But Adolf Stern created the term borderline to describe patients who fall between Sigmund Freud's two main diagnostic categories, psychosis and neurosis. And back in the 1930s, analysts found that certain patients would come to their office with what appeared to be neurotic symptoms of anxiety and depression. But as time passed and analysis didn't cure these symptoms, the psychiatrists began to believe that these patients were actually on the psychotic spectrum or on the borderline between neurosis and psychosis. To put it in layman's terms, that description and the way that borderline personality disorder was discovered and the phrase itself was coined, this was some psychiatrists back in the 1930s that were confused as hell and couldn't decide how to help these patients. These people confused them, and so they just said, eh, they're on the borderline between psychosis and neurosis. That was where it started. Anyone who is looking into 
borderline personality disorder, one of the base level things you need to understand is what the DSM is. The DSM stands for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's a handbook used by healthcare professionals in the United States and much of the world as the authoritative guide to the diagnosis of mental disorders. The DSM contains descriptions, symptoms, and other criteria for diagnosing mental disorders. The DSM was created to catalog mental health conditions, and it is very similar to its counterpart, the International Classification of Disease, also known as the ICD. The ICD is published by the World Health Organization, and it catalogs both physical and mental conditions. If you're living in the United States or Canada, it's likely that mental health professionals use the DSM as their Bible of mental health. In other parts of the world, the DSM isn't necessarily the only thing that's used to diagnose mental health conditions. They would rely on the ICD. Understanding how these disorders are categorized and decided upon and the books and resources that psychiatrists and other mental health professionals use to diagnose and classify you is one of the most important and empowering pieces of information that you can do at the beginning of any mental health or self-awareness journey. Now to understand the DSM, you have to understand who Dr. Robert Spitzer is. Robert Spitzer is the psychiatrist who transformed the science and practice of psychiatry by leading the development of the DSM-3. In the early 1970s, there was a lot of criticism that the American Psychiatric Association was up against. Much of this criticism was due to the fact that if you were someone that struggled with your mental health, you would probably get a completely different mental health disorder diagnosis depending on which psychiatrist or psychologist that you happened to seek treatment from at the time. There were huge exposés done where young students of psychiatry were trying to kind of call out the psychiatric institution by going into psychiatric hospitals undercover, pretending that they had certain mental health disorders and presenting with symptoms. And each place that they went and each psychiatrist that they saw gave them a completely different mental health disorder diagnosis. This caused a lot of chaos at the time, understandably. And so Dr. Robert Spitzer was brought in to create a think tank of different psychiatrists and completely rewrite the DSM. And Robert Spitzer is now well-recognized and championed as someone who completely reformed the DSM and created what is now what was known at the time as the DSM-3. The DSM has a few different editions. Right now, the current DSM is the DSM-5. So as you can see, it's gone on and had different iterations. And the thing is, and where the psychiatric institutions are still up against quite a bit of criticism, and I think this is fair, is that with every edition of the DSM that's released, more and more and more mental health disorders are added. But going back to our friend Dr. Robert Spitzer in the 1970s, 
His goal to tackle all of this criticism was to completely rewrite the DSM and make sure that all of the different mental health disorders had better symptom listings, they were more clearly defined, so that every single mental health professional across the United States, specifically psychiatrists, were operating under the same definitions to try and tackle this issue so that the desired outcome was that if someone presented in a psychiatrist's office, that that person would come out with the same diagnosis no matter what psychiatrist they saw. This was the goal of the DSM-3. Why I'm talking about this is because so many of us, myself included, go into psychiatrist's office and we think that this is medical science, that the existence of personality disorders is proven by hard research. One of the most empowering books I've read in the recent couple of years is by James Davies, and it's called Cracked, Why Psychiatry is Doing More Harm Than Good. This book shows with incredibly profound examples and research that without solid scientific justification, the number of mental health disorders has risen from 106 in 1952 to around 370 today. Anyone who has been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder or who relates to this symptomology and has this terrifying fear of feeling like there's no hope for a cure should read this book. It's one of the most empowering things I've come across in my journey. I want to read a small portion of this book so that you can understand how shoddy the science behind the DSM is. And the DSM is what's being used to diagnose each and every one of us. In this part of the book, and I'm starting on page 28, James is discussing his interview with Robert Spitzer. He got to sit down with Dr. Robert Spitzer, the man who completely reformed the DSM in the 1970s. James writes, I decided to ask Dr. Robert Spitzer whether other disorders that were included in the DSM were there on the basis of equally poor scientific evidence. Is this an isolated example, or was this quite representative? To try to find out, I decided to read to Spitzer the following quotation, which claims that the research backing was extremely poor for most of the mental health disorders Spitzer's team included in the DSM. This verdict comes from one of the leading lights on Spitzer's task force, Dr. Theodore Millen. Here is what Dr. Theodore Millen said about the DSM's construction. Quote, There was very little systematic research, and much of the research that existed was really a hodgepodge, scattered, inconsistent, and ambiguous. I think the majority of us recognized that the amount of good, solid science upon which we were making our decisions was pretty modest. Once I read this quote to Spitzer, I asked him whether he agreed with Millen's statement. After a short and somewhat uncomfortable silence, Spitzer responded in a way I didn't expect. Quote, Well, it's true that for many of the disorders that were added, there wasn't a tremendous amount of research, and certainly there wasn't research in the particular way that we defined these disorders. In the case of Millen's quote, I think he's mainly referring to the personality disorders. But again, it's certainly true that the amount of research validating data on most psychiatric disorders is very limited indeed. This, this is a sidebar for me. This is a quote from the man who created the DSM, the thing that 
all of our mental health professionals are using to diagnose us with borderline personality disorder. I'm going to continue to read the book. So James continues by writing, trying not to look shocked, I continued, so you're saying that there was little research not only supporting your inclusion of the new disorders, but also supporting how these disorders should be defined? Quote, there are very few disorders whose definition was a result of specific research data, responded Spitzer. For borderline personality disorder, there was some research that looked at different ways of defining the disorder. And I guess we chose the definition that seemed to be the most valid. But for the other categories, rarely could you say that there was research literature supporting the definition's validity. Spitzer's admission so surprised me that I decided to check it with other members of his task force. So on a rainy English Monday, I called Professor Donald Klein in his New York office to ask whether he agreed with Spitzer's account of events. Klein had been a leader on the task force and so was at the heart of everything that went on. Sure, we had very little in the way of data, Klein confirmed through a crackling phone line. So we were forced to rely on clinical consensus, which admittedly is a very poor way to do things, but it was better than anything else we had. So without data to guide you, I nudged carefully. How was this consensus reached? We thrashed it out, basically. We had a three-hour argument. There would be about 12 people sitting down at the table. Usually there was a chairperson and there was somebody taking notes. And at the end of each meeting, there would be a distribution of events. And at the next meeting, some would agree with the inclusion and others would continue arguing. If people were still divided, the matter would eventually be decided by a vote. A vote? Really? I asked, trying to conceal that I hardly felt reassured. Sure, that's how it went. Renee Garfinkel, a psychologist who participated in two DSM advisory committees, also confirmed the unscientific processes by which key decisions were made. You must understand, said Garfinkel to me bluntly. What I saw happening on these committees was not scientific. It more resembled a group of friends trying to decide where they wanted to go to dinner. One person says, I feel like Chinese food. And another person says, no, no, I'm more in the mood for Italian food. And finally, after some discussion and collaborative give and take, they all decide to go have Italian. Garfinkel then gave me a concrete example of how far down the scale of intellectual respectability she felt those meetings could sometimes fall. On one occasion, I was sitting in on a task force meeting, and there was a discussion about whether a particular behavior should be classed as a symptom of a particular personality disorder. And as the conversation went on, to my great astonishment, one task force member suddenly piped up and said, oh, no, 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 we can't include that behavior as a symptom because I do that. And so it was decided that that behavior would not be included because presumably, if someone on the task force does it, it must be perfectly normal. According to members of the task force, these meetings were often haphazard affairs. Suddenly these meetings would just happen and there didn't seem to be much basis for it except that someone just decided that all of a sudden we would run with it, said one participant. It seemed, another member admitted, that the loudest voices usually won out. With no extensive data one could turn to, the outcome of the task force's decisions often depended on who in the room had the strongest personality. But the problem with relying on consensus, reiterated Garfinkel, is that in the discussion, some voices will just get quieter, either because they don't want to fight or because they see they're the minority. And snap, that's when the decision is made. In an article for The New Yorker, Alex Spiegel recounts how two new disorders, 
factitious disorder, and brief reactive psychosis made it into the DSM through such disorderly consultations. Roger Peel and Paul Luisada, psychiatrists at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C., wrote a paper in which they used the term hysterical psychoses to describe the behavior of two kinds of patients they'd observed, those who suffered from extremely short episodes of delusion and hallucination after a major traumatic event, and those who felt compelled to show up in an emergency room even though they had no genuine physical or psychological problems. Spitzer read the paper and asked Peel and Luisada, if he could come to Washington to meet them. During a 40-minute conversation, the three decided that, quote, hysterical psychoses should really be divided into two disorders. Short episodes of delusion and hallucination would be labeled brief reactive psychosis, and the tendency to show up in an emergency room without authentic case would be called fictitious disorder. Then, Bob Spitzer asked for a typewriter, Peel says. To Peel's surprise, Spitzer drafted the definitions on the spot. Quote, he banged out criteria sets for factitious disorder and brief reactive psychosis, and it struck me that this was a productive fellow. He comes in to talk about an issue and walks away with diagnostic criteria for two different mental disorders. Both factitious disorder and brief reactive psychosis were included in the DSM-3 with only minor adjustments. What's striking about the construction of the DSM is that the procedures it followed often had very little to do with science, as most people understand the term, because in short, the evidence was just not there. The problem here is obvious. When a group of scientists sit down to decide whether something is true, they consult the evidence. If the evidence points to a clear conclusion, then irrespective of whether an individual scientist likes it, the result has to be accepted. This is how science works. The evidence is king. But when you don't have evidence, people's opinions, beliefs, hopes, and prejudices begin to intrude. In this instance, the scientist who desires a particular conclusion suddenly speaks up, argues loudly, and may, through the sheer force of character and personality, have their preferences accepted. And when there's no evidence to guide me, it can easily become largely a matter of personal or professional preference whether I vote this way or that. Voting, in other words, is not a scientific activity. It's a cultural activity. People vote for class presidents, union leaders, political parties, and a host of other things. And yes, sometimes their votes are vindicated, but often they're not. Votes can disappoint. This is because a vote is not a guarantee that the thing voted for is real or true or good or certain. Votes are at best informed guesses and at worst shots in the dark. And so when anything is voted into existence, whether it be a new leader, a political party, or a new personality disorder, the likelihood that we've got it wrong is never far away. So the snippet of that book is from, again, James Davies, And the book is called Cracked, Why Psychiatry is Doing More Harm Than Good. I highly recommend anyone who is seeking professional mental health treatment in the United States or anywhere else for that matter, read this book. This doesn't mean that we split on mental health professionals and demonize them. There are amazing mental health professionals out there that also share many of these same concerns. And more and more of them are speaking up about this, which is often why if you present to a mental health professional 
sure as hell that you have BPD and you come up against some resistance, there could be a possibility that they share some of these criticisms of the DSM. Maybe they don't really buy into the fact that people's personalities are inherently disordered. There are plenty of incredible professionals, some of whom I have interviewed on this very podcast, who believe that we are walking towards a new future of the way that we view emotional regulation and mental health, and that personality disorders are going to be discontinued. And by that, I mean we will no longer refer to people as having disordered personalities. I hope by me taking the time to explain what the DSM is, which is the book that is going to be used to diagnose you, the book that outlines most of the information we see there about borderline personality disorder, I want to illuminate the fact that there is not a lot of science behind this. These disorders were decided upon by the votes of whoever the most powerful, usually man, was in the room at the time. You might be thinking after all of this, yeah, Molly, but when I read the symptoms of borderline personality disorder, it sounds like me. This is what I'm struggling with, or this is what my family member is struggling with. This is them to a T. I can't remember where I found this. It was some random guy on Twitter, but he uploaded a video of himself and he said, treat the symptoms and F the rest. And I love that. We don't need to have a label or a disorder put on us to understand and treat our symptoms. So if you struggle with the symptoms of borderline personality disorder as they are outlined, having a formal diagnosis doesn't mean much. But being aware of your symptoms and also being aware of your emotional coping style, which is something we're going to talk about, these are two things that you actually can use when you go and seek help from a mental health professional to treat your symptoms. So many of us, including myself, when I first discovered BPD, I was sure that I had it. I went on this mission to find a mental health provider that would diagnose me. I wanted to be told and validated that I had this disorder. Now, three years later, after all of the research that I've done, if I could go back in time and give that version of myself a huge hug, I would tell her to research the DSM, to understand the lacking scientific evidence behind these personality disorders, and that my time was much better suited learning about DBT, learning about the skills, learning about my emotional coping style and my own self-sabotaging behaviors, and working on those, seeking trauma-informed therapy. These are the best ways that you can utilize your energy if you are really thinking that you identify with the symptoms of borderline personality disorder. So now that we've covered the shoddy science behind the DSM and how the idea of personality disorders is not really proven. This frees us from the idea that BPD is somehow an incurable illness. Your personality is not some tumor like cancer that is inside of you. There are certain things in the medical world like cancer, 
other diagnoses that can be proven by a blood test, and you can actually be told the chances of survival. And even then, how many of us know people who have overcome cancers with a 5% survival rate? When we are explaining BPD, so many mental health professionals and other people refer to personality disorders as a disease, as an incurable illness. Now, I hope that this episode so far has shown you that's not the case. This is just a label that a bunch of white dudes in a room decided on. There's not a lot of science behind it, but what is real are the symptoms that you're feeling. And everyone can grow and change. I'm not the same person I was three years ago because of all the resources that I've found, all of the things that I've done to help me learn the skills to better feel my emotions, better connect with the people around me. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So what are the symptoms of borderline personality disorder? At a very high level, BPD is described as a disorder of dysregulation that significantly affects emotions, relationships, memories, and our sense of self. BPD is made up by emotion dysregulation. That is the core of borderline personality disorder, as well as issues with interpersonal relationships, identity, and cognitive dysregulation. People that identify with BPD symptoms, and you'll hear me use this phrase a lot, identify with BPD symptoms. I tiptoe around this and I use this phrasing very intentionally because I don't believe anyone's personality is disordered. If your personality disordered, it feels like you don't have any hope. So if you hear me constantly saying people that identify with BPD symptoms, again, I'm doing this on purpose because the symptoms are very real. I just don't believe that your personality is disordered. So BPD or BPD symptoms cause intense emotions that are really difficult to control and manage. And this is what is called in the professional mental health space as emotional dysregulation. So people that identify with BPD may have a deep fear of abandonment, which is often a central core concept to BPD. And BPD is primarily noticed through interpersonal relationships, and we refer to that as interpersonal dysregulation. People with BPD feel emotions intensely. When they like someone, either in a friendship or romantically, they will love that person very intensely. They maybe will be seen as making that person their entire world. And even if the other person reciprocates, they will tend to be very emotionally enmeshed in very intense personal relationships. BPD symptomology is also reflective of splitting or black and white thinking. This means that we see other people as either good or bad. An example of this black and white splitting thinking, back in the beginning of my recovery journey, before I was aware of any of this stuff, I would not get a text back from my partner and I would immediately be convinced that they hated me or that I hated them, that I'm done with them. This is reflective of something else that people with BPD often identify with, which is a lack of object constancy. 
If you have a solid sense of object constancy, it means that just because something is out of sight, it doesn't mean that it's out of mind. So, for example, someone who may not identify with BPD symptomology and has a very secure attachment style, if their partner leaves for the weekend, they are fine. They know that even though they're out of sight, that their partner still loves them and is going to come back and it's not the end of the world. Someone who identifies with BPD symptomology struggles with object constancy, which means that if they're convinced and we convince ourselves that if something is out of sight, it's out of mind. If our partner leaves us, they must forget about us because we feel so lost if our person, our favorite person, this FP concept that is so often discussed in the BPD community, it spins us out. So this is where these deep-seated fears of abandonment present. One of the best things you can do if you identify with BPD symptomology is look into critical thinking skills. Certain DBT skills like check the facts or thought stopping are extremely powerful as well. And I will link in the episode description to some of these skills so that you can deepen your understanding. Before I really started my recovery journey, I had no concept of understanding how much my splitting and my black and white thinking was negatively impacting my life. At every turn, I was convinced that if I just so much as gotten a certain look from someone or a one-word email, I was convinced that people would hate me or start hating someone because of the smallest things. The more that I've learned and the more I have focused on learning DBT skills and practice critical thinking, I live my life trying to see the gray. It's very rare in life that something is either all good or all bad. There are always the gray areas. And if there's one thing you can do that will completely change your life as someone with BPD, it is to start to learn to see the gray area. I'll also link in the episode description a video about a concept in DBT, which is dialectical behavior therapy, which is a concept called wise mind. Trust me, check out the video. I'll probably do an entire episode on the wise mind concept, but for now, I'll just give you the resource to check out. Another symptom that really goes with BPD quite often and is discussed a lot is cognitive dysregulation, which is also known as just a false perception of reality. And rather getting into this from a super high-level psychological framework, I'm just going to break it down for you. The way I experienced at the beginning of my journey, this cognitive dysregulation, was just that I told myself so many stories. I consider myself to be a pretty intelligent person, but I think many of us with BPD are highly intelligent, highly creative individuals. And when we are living in these distorted, paranoid ways of thinking, we are really good at convincing ourselves of things that just are not true. I think the hardest part of cognitive dysregulation for me was really feeling like someone hated me, really convincing myself that a partner was cheating on me or didn't love me anymore. But in reality, when I look back on these moments now, it may have just been that my partner was going through something and they weren't giving me the attention I needed. So I made up a story in my mind that they hated me or were cheating on me or didn't love me. But now, when I speak to some partners, 
after all of the smoke has cleared, I found out that in some of the times that I was convincing myself of these paranoid delusions and stories that felt so real for me at the time, they were actually just really going through something. They weren't cheating on me. They didn't hate me. They actually felt profoundly alone in their relationship with me because I was so caught up convincing myself of how they should be, idealizing them. It made them feel so alone and isolated in the relationship. And so it's this self-fulfilling prophecy that so many of us that identify with BPD get into. We convince ourselves of these stories that aren't true. And we're living in this painful world, almost of our own creation. But that doesn't mean that your suffering isn't real. So what really helped me is identifying and breaking free from my stories. So how do you break free from your stories? How can you know if something is the BPD or if it's a genuine thing you need to be worried about? That's a question I get so often from my listeners. Something that's helped me so much in reframing these stories and snapping myself out of these destructive thought patterns has been the work of Byron Katie. Byron Katie is an American speaker and author who teaches a method of self-inquiry known as The Work. Byron Katie has an incredible story, and I'm going to link to an interview with her in the description as well as a framework to do the work. So Byron Katie believes that all the suffering that goes on inside our minds is not a reality. It's a story that we torture ourselves with. And the work is this simple completely replicable system for freeing ourselves from the thoughts that make us suffer. I want to make a really important disclaimer here though, because some frameworks and thought-stopping techniques and concepts that preach that all suffering goes on inside of our minds and that it's not reality sometimes comes up against some very fair criticism. And I want to make this extremely clear. Suffering is not always in our minds. So often, we are the victims of horrible things like sexual abuse or systemic racism for people of color or of different identities. And it's really important that I want to make very clear that not all suffering is just a paranoid delusion or in your mind. So if you're listening to this podcast, I want you to know that. Doing the work or asking these four questions that Byron Katie talks about is specifically for things that you know that you might be blowing a little bit out of proportion. Like if someone's not texting you back and you are convincing yourself that they hate you or that your partner is cheating on you. And if you're if you're like me, I've actually been cheated on before. And so sometimes these things are true. But I want to make that really important distinction is if you are the victim of systemic racism or any other kind of prejudice, not all suffering is just inside of your mind. So when we think about Byron Katie's framework, these are for these things that we really are blowing out of proportion. So Byron Katie believes that all war begins on paper. I love that because she really preaches writing stuff down. So the idea behind the work, and this is how you can really break free of a lot of this paranoid thinking that you have, right? If there are these simple things that you know you're blowing out of proportion, I just keep reiterating this. Behind the idea of the work is that you write down your stressful thoughts 
and then you ask yourself the following four questions. Question one, is it true? Question two, can you absolutely know that it's true? Question three, how do you react and what happens in your body, in your mind, when you believe that thought? And the final question is, who would you be without the thought? And then the last part of the work is turn the thought around. So together, let's just quickly do the work with this example situation that I think so many of us can relate to. I'm not getting a text back from my boyfriend, Zaz. And I'm asking myself, I'm writing down the thought, Zaz hates me, he wants to break up with me, and he doesn't love me anymore because he hasn't texted me back for eight hours. So if I'm going to do the work, I'm writing this down. Question number one, is it true? If I'm still with myself and I ask if what I wrote down is really true, Zaz hates me, he's going to break up with me, he doesn't love me anymore because he hasn't texted me back for eight hours, I can say that thought is probably not true. So I'm going to say no. The second question, can you absolutely know that it's true? And this is another opportunity to open your mind and go deeper into the unknown and find the answers that live beneath what we think we know. So can I absolutely know that Zaz hates me and is going to break up with me because he hasn't texted me back? If I answer, honestly, the answer is no. The third question, how do you react when you believe that thought? Now with this question, you begin to notice internal cause and effect. You can see that when you believe the thought, there is a disturbance that can range from mild discomfort to fear or panic. What do you feel? How do you treat the person or the situation you've written about? How do you treat yourself when you believe that thought? And this is the time that you make a list and be specific. So for using this example of Zaz hates me and doesn't love me anymore and he's going to break up with me because he hasn't texted me back. How do I really feel when I believe that? When I really feel that I believe that he's going to break up with me and doesn't love me anymore, I feel terror, shame, panic, abandonment. And how do I treat this person or treat myself when I believe that thought? I treat Zaz when I believe this thought with this clinging, this overwhelming claustrophobic energy, panicky energy. I treat myself horribly too because I treat myself like someone who can't survive without another person. I treat myself like a helpless child. The fourth question is, who would you be without that thought? So at this stage, you imagine yourself in the presence of that person or in that situation without believing the thought. How would your life be different if you didn't have the ability to even think the stressful thought? How would you feel? And which would you prefer, life with or without that thought? Which feels kinder and more peaceful to yourself? So if we're using this example, who would you be without the thought? Who would I be without the thought that Zaz hates me and doesn't love me anymore and is going to break up with me because he doesn't text me back? If I really imagine myself without that thought, how I feel is at peace and comfortable within myself and sure and trusting in Zaz's love for me 
So now this is my favorite part of the work, which is turning the thought around. And this part's a little confusing, but it's pretty amazing. And the turnaround gives you an opportunity to experience the opposite of what you believe. And once you've found one or more turnarounds to your original statement, you're invited to find at least three specific genuine examples of how each turnaround is true in your life. So let's do a turnaround for this example. What was my original thought? Zaz isn't texting me back, so my thought was Zaz hates me. Let's do the turnaround for that. What's the opposite of Zaz hates me? I hate me. He's going to break up with me. What's the turnaround? I'm going to break up with me. He doesn't love me anymore. What's the turnaround to that? I don't love me anymore. This is where this stuff gets really powerful because when I've done the work and I've found these turnarounds, it almost makes me want to cry. And those feelings, those emotions that come up when you do that work, it's even making me really emotional now because I've had a similar thing happen in the last few days. This, I don't love me anymore. I hate me. I'm going to break up with me. It's so reflective of my true inner feelings, which is this deep disconnection with myself. And the work asks us to find at least three specific genuine examples of how all of these turnarounds are true in our lives. So if I need to find examples of I hate me, I don't love me anymore, there are so many examples of that. I often don't feed my body with nourishing foods. I often don't give myself enough rest. I speak very unkindly to myself. I'm convinced that the people that love me are just going to leave me like that. So I hope this demonstration has given you a really powerful example about how we can battle one of the hardest parts of BPD symptomology, which is that paranoid thinking. This also really helps with splitting and critical thinking and the black and white nature of our thought patterns. And if you can get into a habit of doing the work asking yourself these four questions while also holding in your mind the very real reality of systemic racism and prejudices and all the systemic nature, the very real ways that we are victims in our lives and that not everything is a thought that's caused by you, right? But doing the work and asking ourselves these four questions for things that we know deep in our gut that we might just be blowing out of proportion and might actually be a paranoid thought It's some of the most profound and healing work you can do for yourself. And the best part of it is it's free. You can do it. But the thing is you have to commit to doing it every single day and providing yourself compassion the entire time too. This is hard work, but you can change the way that your brain works and this is how you do it. Something that helps me is writing out these four questions, screenshotting them and making them my iPhone background. Do anything that can help you keep this top of mind. I'm also going to link to a PDF worksheet of the work that you can go ahead and access whenever you want. The last symptom of borderline personality disorder that I think is a really core part of why so many people really feel so identified with this is the unstable sense of self. People with 
symptoms of borderline personality disorder find it difficult to form a coherent image of themselves and their likes and dislikes. And people with BPD, when they idealize someone, they're often known to change their personality to match that other person's because they're unsure of what their own personality is. This is called the chameleon effect, and it can occur both consciously and unconsciously, which means sometimes we can just not even be aware that we're doing that. I can't tell you how many times in my life that my clothing styles changed. I changed my hair color. I changed the way I spoke or the music I listened to to impress someone else. A lot of this comes from a deep, deep need for validation and a sense of this approval addiction. We are addicted to approval. We want people to like us because deep down in our heart of hearts, we believe that the people we love are going to discover that we are deeply unlikable. And this leaves us feeling so empty. And this episode is all about empowering you to overcome these feelings and how I tackled this lack of sense of self, which was so profoundly harmful and painful for me, was understanding two concepts. One, the concept of integrity. And the book that changed my life on this, that I will recommend to every single person who identifies with BPD, is called The Way of Integrity by Martha Beck. This book is all about finding your path to your true self and freeing ourselves from people-pleasing behaviors, staying in stale relationships and negative habits. And Martha Beck really helped me understand that so much of what was causing me to suffer and really identify with BPD symptomology was that I was out of touch with my integrity. I was living a life based upon pleasing other people and getting people to like me. I was not living at all in accordance with my own integrity. And this book helped really solidify that framework for me. Another powerful exercise that really, really changed my life was when someone asked me, so what are your personal values? And I didn't have an answer for that. And I think that also contributes so much to our suffering as people with BPD. So what are values? These are the principles that give our lives meaning and allow us to persevere through our challenges. Very few of us have actually sat down and asked ourselves, what are our personal values? You know, when we think about values, you've probably learned many of them from your parents, your teachers, religious leaders, or society around you. And you've probably rebelled against some of those values at times or changed your mind as you've learned more about yourself and the world. But the most impactful and powerful thing you can do to heal from BPD symptomology is to decide or re-decide the top six to eight values that mean the most to you right now and then write them down somewhere prominent wherever you look every day and promise yourself to live in accordance to those values every single day. This is how we develop a sense of self and Martha Beck talks a lot about this in her book as well. ACT or Acceptance and commitment therapy is a form of therapy that is really transformative for people with emotion dysregulation issues, which is something obviously that is very identified with BPD. 
Dr. Russ Harris is the author of numerous books about acceptance and commitment therapy, and he's provided a list of core values in his book that's called The Confidence Gap. A podcast listener recommended that book, and I will link that also in the description. And some of the examples of core values Dr. Russ Harris lists in his book are compassion, health, nature, creativity, loyalty, beauty, bravery, love, learning, leadership, self-preservation, adventure, family, work, success, calm. What you want to do is use a list like this to select your top six to eight values. And you can change your mind. These can change as you grow and develop in your life. But it's important that you really sit down and take some time to think about that. Because I remember when I read about the sense of self issues with BPD, I realized, well, what does that even mean? What does a sense of self mean? It is what you believe in. It is your core values. It is living and integrity. So I'm going to link The Way of Integrity by Martha Beck in the show notes. Also, The Confidence Gap book by Dr. Harris, as well as a link to selecting your different core values. So we're going to finish this podcast today with the question that so many people ask. It's one of the most Googled terms. Is BPD curable? Can someone with BPD get better? I hope that by listening to this podcast episode, you already know the answer to this question. I have provided all of the information I wish that I knew at the beginning of my journey when I was reading things saying that BPD was incurable or the best that I could hope for was that this disease that I had would go into remission like it was some kind of cancerous tumor. Now you understand the dubious science and that there was really a lack of science in even defining personality disorders There is no proven scientific medical evidence that BPD is incurable or that it even exists for that matter. But what we do know is that so many people struggle so deeply with these symptoms, myself included, but there is hope. I am not the same person I was three years ago. Some of my closest friends who I've met through this podcast, who are other people who have been either diagnosed with BPD or identify with BPD symptoms are also not the same person that they were years on years ago. Personalities are not static, set in stone. We can change. We can grow. And there is no finish line. If you're waiting to be healed with an ED, or recovered, what I wish someone told me at the beginning of all of this is, my darling, there is no healed. There is no recovered. There is just healing and growing and changing. And once you start becoming more aware, you can never go back to that unconscious, unaware version of yourself. It's impossible. I can never go back. I'll never be in that same space that I was before. You are not broken. You are not alone. 
There is hope. You are not a lost cause. You just need to learn some skills. You need to learn on changing the way that you think about other people, yourself, and the world. And there is so much amazing information and resources out there for you. And I, every single week, am committed to bringing that to you. In the episode description, you're going to find all of the stuff I talked about today. I challenge you, dive into it. Really start going out and finding your own information. Go past simple BPD infographics on Instagram or TikToks that are 60 seconds that could never describe psychological suffering in short form video content. There are incredible, amazing resources out there that are just waiting for you. So with that, we are going to be going into hot BPD girl summer this summer. I'm going to be releasing more frequent episodes for the next few months that are going to provide this base level understanding of borderline personality disorder and really go into all of the symptoms so that we can start freeing ourselves from the suffering, relating to our suffering in a little bit of a different way so that we can experience a life that feels like it's really worth living and not just existing or surviving. Now, in closing, I just want to say if this episode helped you and you really feel like it could help someone else, share the show on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and tag me. You never know, I might share the post myself or even give you a shout out here on the podcast. And I've taken a little bit of a break from listener questions this week because we kind of went into a deep dive on this episode. But if you want to submit a voicemail or ask me a question, you can go to backfromtheborderline.com slash voicemail. And for my premium subscribers, I will be dropping a new premium episode this Thursday. If you want to dive deeper into concepts or get in more of an intimate look into my life and my recovery, I share that with my premium subscribers. So you can also find more information on that in the episode description too. So with that, I hope you have an amazing week. I'm sending you so much love. And remember, anyone, including you, can come back from the borderline. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.